Hello, everyone. My name is Al Kim. I'm an adult rheumatologist at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm also the director of the Lupus Center at Washington University School of Medicine. And here today, we are going to be talking everything COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance with two of my dearest friends that were core members of this really important organization, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Sparks and Dr. Jean Liu. Jeff, go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Jeff Sparks. I'm a rheumatologist at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And Dr. Liu. Hi, um, I'm an assistant professor in rheumatology at Boston University School of Medicine. So I think, you know, one of the most exciting things that I've ever done in my career, and it may not be ever matched, was being uh, a member of this um, really amazing organization. And I think I would like to break this up actually in kind of five different parts. Um, the very beginning, the, the genesis of it is essentially kind of like this decentralized science medicine type of concept it was very grassroots. And so uh, let's start off with that. But then I wanted to evolve into some of the accomplishments like the hydroxychloroquine brigade, the core major uh, findings from the alliance. And then uh, we'll wrap up with the discussion that you guys had internally about the decision to wind down the alliance around the time of ULAR 2022. And then we'll uh, reminisce at the end about our, our dear friend, Dr. Philip Robinson. So, Gene, you know, why don't you go ahead and start off with kind of just a narrative of the, the genesis of the uh, COVID-19 GRA? Okay, so the day or the day before uh, the WHO declared the pandemic in March 2020, the story we've been telling is that Len Calabrese tweeted out whether there was going to be a registry looking at COVID-19 in people with rheumatic disease because the gastroenterology community had started one um, around IBT. And everyone just responded to that tweet, including the key players, the people who would eventually become the key players, Philip Robinson in Australia and Janusz Yazdani at UCSF. So they were immediately saying, well, Janusz can use her infrastructure and then Phil can use his collaborative spirit, um, getting lots of people on board and getting all the right people to take on these key roles to build this registry out of nothing and start collecting data on COVID-19 in people with rheumatic disease to answer the question, the questions that were all on our minds. So that was really the beginning. And in less than two weeks, the registry actually opened. So IRB, UCSF, getting figuring out what data we wanted to collect, how to collect it rigorously, building that setup, less than two weeks. It was, it was just the quickest anything's ever been done. And it held up and collected so much useful data that we are still analyzing. Yeah, it's it's incredible. The, the Genesis story is one that needs to be deeply analyzed because, you know, having the ability to put together a global organization with, you know, well-defined missions, goals, and of course, the passion of the members and, and, and coordinating these efforts was really remarkable. I remember watching essentially from the sidelines initially on Twitter thinking, my gosh, like this is moving and maturing so fast. You know, I think that though also helped us spark and motivate, no pun intended, Jeffrey, <laughs> kind of the, I think really one of the initial probably movements within the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance, which was 
our response to Didier Raoud's paper or whatever you call that, <laughs> which drops in mid-March. And so, Jeff, you actually, we were texting yeah. this. And just for a background, there were some people, you know, from Silicon Valley who, some of the Silicon Valley bros uh, that were texting from like March 13th to the 16th about hydroxychloroquine because there's in vitro data suggesting it may be antiviral. Then Elon Musk got on board on the 16th. And then the preprint from Raoult's group dropped on the 17th. And then Trump made a comment <laughs> in a briefing on the 19th. And I believe it was around that time, Jeff, you actually texted me that evening thinking, you know, saying like, we got to do something about this. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess take it from there, because that weekend mm -hmm. from March 20th, which is a Friday through the 22nd when we finished it, was an intense period of discussion and a lot of, of writing for actually a brief commentary. Yeah, yeah, I'll say that we're recording this almost exactly three years after this all went down. So it's kind of, you know, reminiscing. Um, it's an odd feeling. And I'll remember when things really hit and when the genesis of GRA happened, I happened to be on vacation in Chile. And I remember seeing tweets from Phil and Janus, and I was kind of obviously scrambling to get back home because the trip was cut short. And I remember thinking, wow, this was bad luck on my part because I really would have been really would have, really would have liked to have uh, been part uh, of the core group. And it was just circumstances that I was like seeing emails, you know, you wait 10 minutes then and things are already moved past you. So I was a little bummed that I kind of missed out in the GRA, but I guess there was still opportunity. So back when I when I actually landed is when the hydroxychloroquine stuff really was coming through. And I learned about things like Zoom and Slack, which were foreign terms to me before then. And yeah, so I, I was telling um, Al about my trials and tribulations on my trip. And this Trump conference happened. And I just I, I think we both kind of had that lightning moment where this is going to impact our patients and we're a bit skeptical that this is going to actually be useful and we could just see the momentum going and and imagine all of the uh, people hoarding medications and we really galvanized very quickly and wrote a paper on Google Docs, um, which was very novel at the time to write something collaboratively and you know incredibly I think it was within six, seven hours, there was a good draft. And within 36 hours, there was a basically final draft. And I don't know if you remember, Al, we submitted that to the New England Journal of Medicine. We actually thought it had a good shot and they quickly rejected it. So we were like, oh, wait, maybe we are rheumatologists. Yes. Put in our place. And then we submitted to Annals of Internal Medicine. And we also got a very quick response. And to our surprise, it was, this is really important. They already had line edits and they said, can you get us the final draft in 24 hours? And it was by far the quickest turnaround I've ever had for a paper. And we knew that we were on to something there. Yeah. So actually, I do want to come back to the leak gene because that was actually uh, a little bit crazy. But I'm actually looking back at the um, H the hydroxychloroquine brigade flag channel that Gene had created as the paper was uh, being submitted. And actually, from resubmission to acceptance, it was eight minutes. <laughs> it was submitted at 7.16 in the morning, and it was accepted in central time, and it was accepted at 7.24. So that's, which is remarkable. But Gene, uh, yeah, you you uh, mentioned that 
while it was under review at the New England Journal, it got, you know, people already had copies of the draft, which was really fascinating. And then the other comment is uh, like, this was novel that we were collaborating and it's like maybe a dozen co-authors, we were all writing and we were writing over each other's stuff. (laughs) And the only reason it took so long, three days, we could have written this in one and submitted something, but it took three days because everyone wanted it to be like, to just be exactly like what, uh, something that we could all agree on. So we wrote and rewrote in like just cycles 24 seven, because people were writing in different time zones across the world. So um, it only took three days because we wanted it to be, to like send a clear message that we could all agree on and having a dozen rheumatologists across the world agree on something <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Just yeah. so for the audience, um, this, the, this piece that we're talking about um, starts off with the uh, question of rush to judgment and it came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine. The final copy came out in June 16th, that particular issue. So if you guys in the audience want to take a look at that, you know, I was rereading it. And it's, it's just really interesting to see the initial draft, which I saved, to, and then the final version, like just how amazing it was to be able to work with all these people that were co-authors on it. And I think that's the other aspect here, too, that I want to eventually evolve into and then discuss the core uh, accomplishments is, the number of people that I met through the hydroxychloroquine brigade, including Eugene, we've never met before then, really gave me comfort about the future of rheumatology because I because I didn't know most of the people you know that we were working with, but we were you know linked together by this need to make sure that you know the, there's civil discourse of the discussion of hydroxychloroquine, you know, meeting you, Mike Putman. Uh, Sebastian Satui, a whole bunch of people that I never met before and finally met in person this past uh, year at ACR was was really reassuring. And actually, again, that's I mentioned earlier for me, this was probably going to be the highlight of my career, largely because of the people that I, I was able to work with. So it was a real, real honor. But, you know, moving on then to kind of the core accomplishments of the GRA, I mean, I don't know how many papers came out of this effort so far, but certainly I would say 90% of the papers, if not higher, um, were really first to report, right? Various associations of medications, et cetera, risk factors with a COVID-19 outcome. So I guess, you know, I'll just open the floor up to the both of you, you know, some of the core major accomplishments and then some of the ones that you felt like really hit home for you guys. Yeah, I'll start because uh, I want to save the RA paper to Jeff um, (laughs) because he led that. But we had our first paper within a month of the registry opening. So everything happened really quickly. And most of our really big findings from the registry came out within just a few months of that initial period. And then things moved slower after that. So we were the first to note that a higher dose of prednisone use at the time of COVID diagnosis was associated with worse outcomes, bearing in mind that our registry only captured people who might have disease who all had a diagnosis of COVID. So we have no comparators that didn't have COVID. We have no comparators that didn't have a rheumatic disease. But when you compare people who are on a high, high dose of 
prednisone versus those who are, say, not on prednisone at all, you saw that there was a higher odds of having a bad COVID outcome like hospitalization or death. So we could see that. Then we saw that disease activity was also associated with worse outcomes. We saw that there was an interaction between steroid dose and disease activity. And we saw that there was a signal for rituximab, as you would expect with B-cell depletion and worse outcomes with COVID. So these were things that held up over time. They held up across other registries. They held up in population level studies, including from Scandinavian countries where they are able to collect basically all all your confounders <laughs> that you want. So these are all, all things that were the first, we were the first to show them and they were replicated across other studies. So Jeff, on to you. <laughs> well, I think obviously the physician registry has been sort of the crown jewel of the GRA and it's really incredible how productive it is, has been. You know, I, I think this is the vision that Phil and others had at the very beginning is let's have a case report form that will be comprehensive, but not so imposing so that people will actually enter the data. You know, it, I've entered a lot of a lot of cases in there. It takes as little as two minutes, probably as long as 10. And we're able to really find the hard outcomes that patients and clinicians care about. And if you think about, you know, there was obviously a lot of fear at the beginning related to immune suppression and specific medications. And a lot of the findings were actually fairly reassuring, in particular related to TNF inhibitors. And so, you know, at the very beginning, of course, we were clamoring for cases. There weren't that many cases overall. And, you know, to cobble together cases at your own institution was really tough, but to do it globally and obviously to share the data quickly, I think was a really great vision. And at the beginning, it was kind of lumping. And as cases became more plentiful, we were able to split and we were able to do papers related to specific medications, specific diseases, specific disease states. And so I was lucky to uh, lead the first disease-specific investigation which with Zach Wallace. And we were really interested in medications in a single disease related to rheumatoid arthritis. And really to the best of our ability, trying to grapple with the confounding by indication. So, you know, we did really reiterate the finding that rituximab had really high risk for poor outcomes. Not only was it, you know, the signal there was just, you know, remarkable, but also it was a bit reassuring that the TNF inhibitor patients did pretty well, abatacept did pretty well, or leukin-6 inhibitor patients did pretty well, JAK inhibitors probably somewhere in the middle. So I think there's both, you know, findings that could put people at, could reassure them. And there's also findings that really hone in on a specific population where you need to think about risk mitigation strategies. And I think it dovetailed nicely into the vaccine era as far as trying to prioritize people and obviously trying to get our patients vaccinated as quickly as possible. You know, when I think back about that era, that time, that was one of the most difficult times as a provider where you had no answers and there was so much fear. And when these data came out so quickly, I mean, that was a huge accomplishment. I think for me, other core accomplishments really was kind of the shared leadership structure. It's, I felt like every paper had a different set of senior authors, different lead authors, you know, doing the effort. Of course, there was so there were so many questions that could have been asked. And again, the speed and the necessity to be able to get the information out really necessitated 
you know, kind of splitting the responsibilities amongst all the GRA members. But, you know, I think that's something that the GRA should be really, really proud about is just that, you know, everyone is going to have a role here. And if you want to take it, just go ahead. We'll help you, right? And make sure, and everyone ensure that the rigor of the analyses, you know, will um, you know, hold through and, and will be durable. Don't miss part two of this podcast with Drs. Al Kim, Jean Liu, and Jeffrey Sparks as they review the accomplishments of the Global Rheumatology Alliance and remember the late Phil Robinson, who was so instrumental in its creation.